Easter is, uh, of course, all over the world today, right? People are gathered and they are gathered to celebrate Christ's victory over death by rising from the dead. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know how it is, you can just get familiar with something and, you know, just sometimes it can just become uh, sort of commonplace, you know, can become a bit of a routine. But um, I, I hope today that as we look at the words of Jesus here, I just, I'm just praying that God would really impress in a really powerful way just the reality of this on our hearts. I think that, you know, sometimes we, we just, you know, we know it, but it doesn't impact us in, in the moment like it potentially could. So I, I pray that that happens today. So as we're together, as we, uh, the church, are here celebrating Christ's victory over death, that just the, the, the truth of that and the, the power of that would impact us. So Easter is the church's celebration of Christ's victory over death, but it's also a day where we who are believers, we have this opportunity to um, what you might call address the proverbial elephant in the room. So, you know, the elephant in the room is that obvious thing that, that everybody is trying to avoid talking about. And, and what is that? Well, that is death. Death is that thing that we do our best to not really, not only not talk about it, but we, we really do our best to uh, not even think about it. But the, the crazy thing, of course, is the inevitability of it. Death is inevitable. Every single one of us will die. And so even though it is sometimes uncomfortable, even though uh, sometimes it can be difficult, it is something that we, we need to consider, we need to think about. And, and this day gives us an amazing opportunity to do that. Now, this is a question, and this question has been around since the, the very beginning. And the question is this, if a person dies, will they live again? It, the, the book of Job in the Bible, some, some say that Job is perhaps the oldest book in the Bible. And in Job, Job actually asked that question. So it was a question in his day, and of course, it is a question in our day. And yet to this very day, all the human wisdom combined hasn't been able to give a definitive or satisfactory answer to the question of death and what lies beyond. Now, I want to, I'm going to quote several people right now. I'm not even going to mention their names, but... I want you to listen to the voices of philosophers, poets, scientists, artists, educators, statesmen, inventors, and religious leaders from the past all the way to the present. These are, these are just comments. I read hundreds, literally hundreds of comments regarding death. And I, I just put these together because I think it's really telling as we look at what people say. Um, we just begin to realize that, wow, this is still as much a mystery for most people today as it's ever been. So uh, listen to these quotes. I'll, I'll just give the quote. I'll pause slightly to indicate that that quote's finished and we're coming to another one, but starts with this one. Life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. Life and death are illusions. If we don't know life, how can we know death? Death may be the greatest of all human blessings. The goal of all life is death. Death makes us or makes angels of us and gives us wings. Death 
does not concern us because as long as we exist, death is not here. And when it does come, we no longer exist. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It cleans out the old to make way for the new. I'm not afraid of death. Life is pleasant. Death is peaceful. Being dead will be no different from being unborn. There is nothing to fear in that. Not even old age knows how to love death. So again, this is just a sampling of quotes spanning much of, of, of human history. And as I said, philosophers here, poets, scientists, artists, all, all of these different people. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, the one thing that becomes clear from these statements is that no one really has any idea what they're talking about when it comes to death. <laughs> this is all guesswork. No, nobody knows. And, you know, some of the things they say seem a bit profound, but yet some of the things that are said seem a bit absurd. But yet this is really the, the uh, accumulated wisdom that's coming uh, from, from people collectively on the issue. And, you know, it kind of, if you sort of break it down, it kind of covers three areas. So there are some people that basically say, you know, when you die, you just cease to exist. That doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. That's, you know, I wasn't here before. I won't be here then. And that's their perspective. Uh, there are others. We didn't necessarily reference anyone who believes in reincarnation, but people believe that, well, you know, I'm, I exist in this form now, and when I die, I will just take on another form. That's the idea of reincarnation. Um, many people, of course, just look at it as whatever is in the future, it's got to be better than what we've got now, so it's moving on to a better place. But I think what becomes clear is that everyone is simply guessing at what happens after we die. There's only one person in history only one who can speak with certainty and authority and from personal experience. Speaking from personal experience on the issue of death. And I think we know who that person is. That person is Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth alone speaks and, and really has the, the right to speak on this issue. So unlike everyone else, ancient and modern, Jesus didn't speculate. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I think it's like this, or, you know, perhaps it's like that. Uh, Jesus knew exactly the what and the why of death. And just to summarize it, this is what Jesus would say regarding death. Number one, death is the enemy. You know, a couple of people here said death is probably the greatest thing to ever happen. No, not according to scripture and, and not according to human experience either. You know, how, how many uh, people, when somebody dies, how many people feel really good about that? Well, the vast majority of people don't feel good about that. Even among Christians, that's the case. So the idea that death is probably the greatest invention ever, uh, Jesus would disagree. Death is the enemy. Uh, it is the work of the devil. It is the consequence of sin. So the Bible tells us that death is connected to something. There was something that preceded death. Sin brought death into the world. And then finally, it is the punishment for rebellion against God. So that's what death is. Jesus comes into the world. Listen, he came primarily to conquer death. Now, Jesus did many things when he was here in the world. He um, cleansed the lepers. He gave sight to the blind. Uh, he caused the lame to walk. He um, you know, fed the multitudes. He calmed the wind and the waves. Jesus did many things. All of those things that he did were basically means of uh, showing that he was someone with authority. But the primary purpose of the coming of Jesus into the world was to conquer death. 
And even during his public ministry, he demonstrated his power over death by raising at least three people from the dead. Now, I say at least three people because the scriptures just record um, three people at least, you know, kind of by, by name. Um, there's good reason to believe that there were many others that were raised from the dead that simply were not recorded because John and his gospel tells us uh, at the end of the gospel, he says, Jesus did many other things that if we were to write them down, all, all of the books in the world couldn't contain the stories. But, but in the gospels, you have uh, three people specifically named or pointed out that Jesus brought back from the dead. There was a 12-year-old girl. She was the daughter of a man named Jairus. Then there was a, a boy or, or probably a young man. He was the son of a widow. And on this particular occasion, Jesus was coming into a village. The village was called Nain. And there was a funeral procession that was taking place. And there was the, the mother, walking along, alongside the coffin, weeping, and here's her young son. And Jesus stops the procession. He goes over to the coffin. He takes the boy by the hand and, and raises him up and um, restores him to uh, his mother. And then the third um, resurrection would be Lazarus. And Lazarus was a a personal friend of Jesus. He was a personal friend of this family, and there were two sisters, Mary and Martha, and then Lazarus, their brother. Lazarus uh, actually died. Jesus raised him from the dead, and on the occasion of raising Lazarus, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, speaking of Lazarus, he, he, Lazarus, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So Jesus, first of all, he raises the dead. He says he's the resurrection and the life. And then he also spoke of his own coming death and resurrection on a couple of occasions. On one occasion, he said, destroy this temple. He's referring to his body. He said, he's speaking to the religious leaders who were opposing him. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And then on another occasion, he, speaking of himself as the son of man, the son of man will be mocked and insulted and spit upon and killed, and the third day he will rise again. So death is this, the real, this, this reality that nobody really uh, can explain. Jesus comes and gives us the explanation for it, and, and what I'm saying is he demonstrates that he has power and authority over it by raising the dead. He claims to be the resurrection and the life. And then he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to actually rise again, which will, of course, then ultimately be the proof that what he said was true. And so Jesus did rise again, as the scriptures attest. History records this as a fact and millions upon millions of, of transformed lives would affirm that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, some people today say, well, you know, this is just a, a fairy tale. This is a myth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mentioned this uh, at the sunrise service this morning. There's an atheist um, named Laura, uh, Lawrence Krauss, and uh, he was having some fun yesterday because, of course, today is April 1st, and it's April Fool's Day, and he says, oh, you know, that it just so... Uh, ironic that Easter happens to fall on April Fool's Day. And, you know, so for, so for him, this is a big joke. Uh, th this is a myth. And there are people that think of it in those ways. There are people that think, well, of course, there's no historical evidence for this. But the fact of the matter is, there is plenty of historical evidence. Let me quote to you from two um, person, two, two people who... Uh, are credible in the area of um, evidence. Thomas Arnold was a well-known British historian and educator back in the 1800s. Uh, he said this, he said, the evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing upon 
a most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind, which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So this, so this guy is a historian. He spent most of his life studying histories, and he says this is a, this is a historical fact. Um, one of the founding, uh, one, one of the pr- principal founders of the Harvard Law School, a man by the name of Simon Greenleaf, who even to this very day um, would be recognized as one of the greatest brilliant or one of the most brilliant uh, legal minds in the history of our country. Simon Greenleaf, uh, he said this, he said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. A person who rejects Christ may choose to say that I do not accept it. They may not choose to say there is not enough evidence. Now, the interesting thing about this guy, Simon Greenleaf, is that he wrote this massive uh, volume that is still in circulation and used today called, um, I think it's called The Laws of of Legal Evidence. And um, it became a standard in law school. So he wrote that. He was an atheist. And in one of his classes, a student challenged him to take the principles that he wrote in his book and to apply them to the resurrection. And he decided that he would do it thinking, of course, that he would uh, easily refute this idea that there was a resurrection, but he came to the exact opposite conclusion and became a believer in Christ. And from that point forward, he wrote much on uh, the subject of the, the historicity of the resurrection. So for those who would want to dismiss this as you know, some sort of a legend, myth, fairy tale, something like that, uh, the historical evidence really doesn't allow for that. So, so we, we've looked at that. We've heard some of the, the vain theories on death from people across the centuries. What I want to do is I want to look at what Jesus said, and I want to look at the passage that we read together today here in Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. And Here again, I want to focus right now on verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So these are the words of Jesus to John. Now, again, I am he who lives and was dead. How many people in history could say that? Have you ever met anybody that says, uh, hey, you know, I was dead, and um, that was a while ago, but, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm okay now. I mean, you know, you don't meet many people that would say something like, I am he or she who lives, but I was dead. How many people in history could say that? Well, actually, believe it or not, there are a few. There are a few who could say that. In the Old Testament accounts, we have... Uh, the record of three resurrections in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have two prophets with similar names, Elijah and Elisha. And they, they're different people, but they actually, their ministries were connected to each other. But the, the three resurrections in the Old Testament are connected to these two prophets. So first of all, Elijah um, he was a friend with a woman who was a widow and her son had died. And so Elijah was used by God to raise her son from the dead. Elisha had a woman and a man. They were, they were like his, his benefactors. They, um, when he came through their, their town, they would give him a room to stay in and so forth. So he had this relationship with his family. And at one time, their young son died and Elisha was used by God to raise him from the dead. And then the other 
resurrection in the Old Testament has to do with Elisha as well. And this is after Elisha himself had died. His body had been placed in a tomb and had decomposed and all that was left were his bones. There was a situation where um, some of the men of Israel, they were in a, a battle sort of a thing and the enemy was there and they, uh, they had one of their one of their, one of their uh, fellow soldiers was killed. They didn't have time to bury him. So they threw him in Elisha's tomb. And once his body hit the bones of Elisha, he sprang back to life. So there are a few people who could say they live and were dead. When we come to the New Testament, there are five people in the New Testament that were raised from the dead. We've already mentioned three of them. Jairus' daughter, the, the widow's son, Lazarus. But then when we come to the book of Acts, we find that there was a woman named Dorcas um, and Peter was used in raising her from the dead. And then there was a um, young man named Eutychus and Paul, the apostle. And then to be fair, there, there's also in Matthew's gospel, uh, it tells us that after the resurrection of Jesus, there were saints who had previously died who were seen in the streets of Jerusalem. So we don't know anything else about that. So my point is this. As odd as it might sound, some people could say, I am he or she who lives, I was dead. But no one could say what Jesus then went on to say. Because what he went on to say is, and I am alive forevermore. You see, that's the difference. This is where we see the uniqueness of Jesus. You see, all of those that were previously raised were raised back into mortality. See, their mortal bodies had died and been restored to life but they were still mortal bodies and would die again. So every one of those people that we just mentioned, they died again. But you see, when Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, Jesus there is making a statement of immortality. You see, with Jesus, he was raised immortal. He was raised with a, a glorified body. He was raised with a body that's not subject to sickness or to pain or to suffering or to death. He was raised in a body that is not even limited to the earth. He was raised in a body that was able, as we look at the, the resurrection accounts, we see that Jesus was able to uh, suddenly appear and disappear. He, he came into a room when the doors were locked and, and things like that. And then, of course, ultimately, he, in that same body, he ascended into heaven. And so with Jesus, he has now this immortal body. And this is the body that Paul wrote about in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you ever want to do a study on the resurrection. First Corinthians 15 is the, is the chapter to turn to. And it's here in first Corinthians 15 that Paul gives us the contrast between the natural body or the mortal body and the spiritual body, or we might call it the immortal body. And so there, what Paul is doing is he's describing the future resurrection of our bodies which will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, sown means put into the ground. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. You see, this resurrection that is future for us who believe in Jesus has already happened 
to Jesus. That's why Jesus is referred to by Paul as the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth is the one and only human being presently living with an immortal body. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. Think of all the people that have ever lived. Jesus alone lives in an immortal body. Think of the, the ages-long conquest for immortality. I mean, th this is something that, that men have been searching for, for as far back as, as we can remember. You know, sometimes it's uh, spoken of like the fountain of youth. I mean, what is the idea? You're immortal. You're, you're never going to die. And, and there has been this ages-long conquest for immortality, and Jesus possesses. He alone possesses immortality. Now, again, this isn't just something for Greek mythology or, you know, something way back when, when people thought that you could attain this. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but people in Silicon Valley and uh, elsewhere, uh, there are people there that believe that it is just a matter of time before they discover the means to attaining immortality. You know, that is the, that is the thrust now in that, in that world. Technology has taken us this far, and with the advances in technology and with the development of artificial intelligence and, and all of that, you know, now they're, they're thinking that, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer and closer to being able to beat death. We're getting closer to, to being able to attain uh, immortality. But what they apparently don't know is that the only way to attain immortality is you have to die and rise again. And look, nobody has done that except one. So the success rate for that, apart from Jesus, is zero. You die and you stay dead. That's just the way it works. Only Jesus beat death. Only Jesus can say, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He alone possesses immortality. Now, now remember, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at this in, in a moment, when we think of Jesus, we have to understand that he is indeed God, he's God the Son, but he is a, he is a human being. So what we have this moment is we have a human being somebody just like us, who is immortal, who is there at the throne of God, sitting on the throne of God. There's a person, there's a, there's a human being, there's a man sitting there with immortality. That man is Jesus. Now, notice here in verse 18, when Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, he then says, amen. This is a little bit odd. Now, we, we usually find amen at the, at the end of something, but, but you'll notice Jesus goes on to uh, say something beyond the amen. So amen, we, we say that. You know, that's kind of a church word in some ways, but you know, people will use it. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but amen is, is actually a Hebrew word. It is a Hebrew word, and amen means true. Somebody says, amen. They're saying, man, that is true. Or, or it means faithful. It means certain. And it's not too often that you find God saying amen. But here is an example. Jesus, the God man, he says, amen. And when, when amen is said by God, it means something like it is and shall be so. It's an unalterable, fixed reality. So when Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, it's like that's, that's the final word. There's nothing more that can be said. It's like the proverbial mic drop, you know? <laughs> you know, today, but people, you know, mic drop is like, that's it. That was, that, nothing could be said beyond that. that. That's really what this amen is. 
I'm alive forevermore. Amen. It's, that's the, in a sense, it's kind of the end of it. That, that's, that's the reality. Jesus says that to us. But then, notice he goes on beyond that, as I said. But before we look at what he said beyond that, I, w- I want us to just back up in the text because we need to look at the end of verse 17 and the beginning, um, or actually at, at verse 17. Because he said two things there that we need to think about for a moment. The first thing he said, and he's speaking to John, the first thing he said was, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, this is the truth. When it comes to death, death strikes fear in us. And understandably and, and rightfully. Now, you know, you occasionally find a person who you know, boastfully says, well, I'm not afraid of death. And usually they say that when there's no threat of death. It's a little bit of a different story. If they're, you know, death is staring them in the face, they might have a little bit of a different uh, reaction at that point. But whatever. But generally speaking, it's true, isn't it, that the fear of death has plagued humanity from the beginning. This is one of those things that, that everybody who's honest says, you know, I, that, that's, that's fearful. We do, of course, we do everything we can to make sure we're avoiding death or we're seeking to somehow escape it. Um, the prophet Isaiah talked about this, this continued um, plague over man. Uh, he refers to this as the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. That's death. It's like a cloud of gloom. And it just hangs over the earth. The writer of Hebrews, which is a letter in the New Testament, speaks of those, and he's really, again, generally speaking of all people, who through fear of death live all their lives subject to bondage. So now, thinking that that is the common experience of each one of us, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Now, when somebody tells you not to be afraid, it really depends on who that person is and what their authority is as to whether you are uh, you know, comforted by that or, or whether or not your fear is alleviated, right? Now, some people tell you to be, not to be afraid and you think, well, why not? What do you know? What are you going to do to help me? Well, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, especially in the face of death, remember, he's the one who is living but was dead and is alive forevermore. So he says, don't be afraid. But then he also says, notice, I am the first and the last. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, what he's reminding John of is he is not only a man, but he is the man who is also God. Listen to a quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. We're talking about God. The the Lord of hosts means the one who, uh, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Um, What does he say? I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. So you see, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. Basically, don't be afraid. I am the Lord. And again, with Jesus, what we have is that he is a man, yes, but he is also God. And this is the unique thing about Jesus. This is the thing that uh, causes him to to be in a category all by himself. He is the God-man. And in his humanity, God, so God becomes a man in order to destroy death. It was God who had declared that he would be the destruction of death. Listen to what God said through the prophet Hosea. He said, I will ransom them, my people, from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And then he said this, O death, I will be your plagues. O Hades, I will be your destruction. 
And then Paul, the apostle later, playing off uh, those words in Hosea, uh, he, he almost taunts death. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says one more thing. He says, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. So now listen to these claims. Because again, and, and just if you can, you know, think about a few of those things that we read earlier, uh, different ideas about death. Uh, there's no ambiguity with Jesus. There, there's no guesswork here with Jesus. He says, I, I'm alive. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. And now he says, and I have the keys. I mean, those are, those are pretty astounding claims. You know, what is kind of ironic to me is um, I have never heard, nor have I ever given an Easter sermon on these verses. And I think, what in the world? How did I miss this? You know, for all these years. I mean, they're, they're kit. This is one of the greatest resurrection texts ever. Jesus is just saying it clearly. But he says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. So, remember, Jesus Christ, he's the only human being with immortality. He's not merely a man, but he is also God, God the Son, and he alone has power, he says, and authority over death and its prison house, Hades. So let's talk for a second about uh, Hades and death. Hades and death refer to both uh, body and soul. So when when the references to death is talking about the body. The body is what dies. But when um, the references to Hades, uh, Hades is, is really referring to the soul. Now, Jesus said, I have the keys. The keys are a way um, of speaking of authority. So the keys are symbolic. Remember Jesus said, uh, to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom. He said that to the apostles. He was saying, I'm giving you authority. Now here Jesus says, basically, he says, I have authority over death that kills the body and over Hades that detains the soul. And like I said, remember, mankind has been powerless against death and Hades. Nothing that anyone can do about it. I mean, think of, sometimes I think about Think about all of the great people that have lived. Think about all the powerful people that have lived. You know, there have been people that have been very powerful, conquered nations, ruled over people, uh, you know, seemed to be invincible. But when death came, they were powerless against it. And death swallowed them up. Their bodies died and their souls went to this place, and there, there was nothing that could be done about it. And that still, of course, happens every single day. But, but Jesus says that he has absolute power to deliver from death and Hades, but we must also understand that he has absolute power to deliver over to death and Hades. So what are we talking about? Well, let's be clear about Hades. Hades is not hell as we commonly think of hell now. Some of the older translations of the Bible actually would have hell here rather than Hades. And that's not totally accurate. The Greek word is the word Hades. And Hades, more precisely, would be the waiting room for hell. You see, when a person dies... In their sin, when a person dies in rebellion to God, when a person uh, you know, dies without receiving God's salvation, their, their body obviously dies, and, and then their soul goes not, not to hell as we commonly think of it, their, their soul goes to Hades. 
It is, like I said, it is, in a sense, the waiting room. Or to use a different analogy, it's like the criminal that uh, is, is convicted and sentenced, and their ultimate destination is prison, but there's a temporary stopover usually in county jail. But they're, they're incarcerated, and they're not going to give out. They're, they're not going to get out. They're going to transfer. And so, in a sense, that's the picture that we have here. It is the temporary prison for those who at the end of the ages will be sentenced to eternal separation from God. Now, of course, this is Easter. This is the day of joy and we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ and you came to get encouraged. (laughs) And I'm up here talking about hell. It's like, what? is going on today. Well, listen, th- these are the realities. I mean, if, if everything we're talking about is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, which he did, then we have to look at the whole picture. And, and he is the one who tells us that he, was, uh, that he lives and was dead. He's alive forevermore. He's the one who says, I alone have the keys of death and Hades. And so we have to look at it. So Some of you might uh, be aware of this. It was reported this week that the Pope uh, allegedly said there is no hell. Now, I don't know if the Pope said that or not. Um, uh, A journalist that he had a conversation with, uh, a 90-something-year-old atheist journalist, he said this is what the Pope says. The Vatican came back and said, no, the Pope did not say that. Uh, We don't know. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if the Pope said there's no hell. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's not a liberal Protestant minister on the planet that believes in hell. So it's not uncommon for people in, you know, high positions in, in religious organizations to not believe in hell. There, there are some, even in the, the evangelical world, the evangelical world are the, uh, the world of Christians who are supposed to, you know, take the Bible seriously and, and believe it. But there are uh, a growing number of evangelicals who do not believe in hell. But Jesus, the one who knows better than anyone, he says that there is a hell, and he says that he, and he alone has the keys to it. And now listen closely, because this is where it is so serious. Um, The keys, remember, they can do two things. They can lock you in, but they can also lock you out. And that's the reality with Jesus. His authority, his power is to place people in hell or to prevent them from going there. Now, of course, his preference, his his desire is that nobody would go there. He, does, he doesn't want anybody to go there. That's why he came and died. That's why he gave his life. So we would not have to suffer the consequences and the punishment of our sin. That's what the cross was about. And as a matter of fact, when it comes to the subject of hell, the Bible says hell is very real. The Bible tells us, and it was Jesus himself who told us, that hell was never intended as a, as a destination for human beings. Jesus said that that hell was made for the devil and his angels. But the sad truth is that people will go to hell. Not because God originally intended that to be the case, but because people will refuse the gift of God. They will refuse the sacrifice that Jesus made. They will continue their rebellion against God. And in their rebellion against God, they're following the great rebel leader, Satan, And then what happens is uh, their destiny becomes his destiny. But that's not what Jesus wants. So there is a locking out of hell. I like that. there's, there's There's a guarantee. Every one of us can have the absolute guarantee that we will not go to hell. And how do we have that assurance? That assurance comes to us by 
believing in the one who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That assurance comes to us by, by receiving the salvation, the salvation from our sins, from death and Hades and hell. That's what's happening when we're receiving Christ. So when we receive Christ, we have the absolute guarantee because Jesus is the one who has the authority. We have the absolute guarantee that we are locked out of hell. We will never go there. But who is locked in? Well, those that are locked in are those who refuse God's gift. Now, now again, just I want you to take a serious moment here, and I want you to think with me, because it's easy uh, to live our lives, like we said. We, we avoid the elephant in the room. We don't want to think about this or talk about it, and we've got all of these voices around us telling us uh, you know, not to worry about that sort of a thing. But this is too serious a matter to not think about or worry about. It's the most serious matter because it's a reality for every one of us. We will die. Inevitable. And we will go to heaven or hell. There's no middle ground. There's nothing in between. And the, the determining factor will be simply this. What did you do in response to God's love through his son, Jesus, who gave up his life on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could have eternal life. What did you do with that? If you have embraced that, then God is rejoicing because that's the very reason he sent his son into the world. If you're rejecting that, God is grieving over that because he doesn't want any to perish, but no one that's doing that will ever get off the hook. So, as we close, when it comes to the all-important questions of death, dying, and what happens beyond the grave, please do not put your trust in the empty speculations of mortal men or women. Now, if you are not yet convinced that there isn't another answer out there. You can spend next week, I just want you to just go on Google and just look up what everybody said about death. And it, it'll take you all the way back to the ancient philosophers and to the Eastern uh, you know, Confucius and people like that. It, it'll give you, it'll give you a, a gamut of uh, opinions. But you know, as I did that, literally for hours, I just contrasted all of that with this statement. And I thought, man, there isn't even a comparison. You, you can't even begin to compare what Jesus said. Or, or what everybody else has said about death with what Jesus said. He spoke with absolute authority. This is what it is. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of death. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. Everything begins and ends with me is what he's saying. The first and the last is, is God's way of saying I'm eternal. I'm the first and the last. And then I am he who lives and was dead. But behold, I am alive. I have immortality. No one else has immortality. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So rather than uh, putting any confidence whatsoever in the empty speculations of mortal men, rather put your full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, who is alive forevermore. And here's the... the wonderful thing about Jesus is just that. He is alive. And like I said earlier, he is, as a man, he is sitting there in heaven on the throne, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, as the scripture says. But guess what? Because he's God, he's also here today. He's also actively still at work in the world. Jesus is alive, not just sitting in heaven, but he's alive 
And he's right here in this room today. And he is wherever anybody is gathered and calling upon his name. And anyone who will say, Lord, I believe that you died on that cross for me. And I believe that you rose again. And even if you struggle with believing that, and and if you were to just say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, you know what? He will help you because he is alive and he will meet you right here today. And he will give you that life, that eternal life. So when you look ahead to the inevitable day of death, you can say, well, you know what? I'm not going to be afraid because the one who is eternal, he conquered death. He's alive forevermore and I'm trusting in him. So God help everyone to do that, especially on this day. So Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, that your great truth that we see here in this amazing passage in Revelation, the truth, Lord, that you are alive. You were once dead, but you are alive forever. Lord, may, may that truth do two things here today. I pray that it would comfort those who, who already know this. And Lord, I, I pray also for anyone who maybe in recent days or maybe not so recent days, they've, a loved one has passed and their heart has been heavy over this. I pray that you would bring them great comfort through this truth today. But Lord, I also would pray for any with us today who have yet to receive the forgiveness that you offer, the forgiveness that you purchased when you died on that cross. They've yet to receive that. They've yet to receive you. Lord, help them to open their hearts today and to receive that life. Lord, you said regarding your resurrection that you would live. And because you lived, all those who trusted in you would live also. So help each and every one today to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name.